Hi, everybody. This is uh, Curtis. I just wanted to introduce uh, Dale Sands to you very briefly. Uh, like Stephanie said, Dale is a Senior Vice President and Global Practice Director for the Environmental Business Line of AECOM. Uh, AECOM is a $8 billion global provider of professional, technical, and management support services and has employees that uh, range almost to uh, 100,000 employees. Um, and these include architects, engineers, designers, planners, scientists, and management con construction service professionals that serve clients in 150 countries all over the world. Um, based in Chicago, uh, Dale has more than 30 years of environmental management experience and has worked in senior management positions for AECOM and its predecessor companies for 18 years. Um, he has lived and worked in internationally and has environmental management experience in over 50 countries. Um, Dale was appointed uh, the, vice chair of, the vice chair of the UN, UN Private Sector Advisory Group for Disaster Reduction after the Global Platform in 2012 and leads AECOM's collaborative partnership with IBM in developing the Re Resilient Cities Scorecard for the UN. Uh, this scorecard assists major cities around the world in integrating sustainability and assessing preparedness and resilience to natural disasters such as severe storms, sea level rise, floods, droughts, wildfires, and earthquakes. Um, Mr. Sands is an invited speaker to many environmental conferences and has authored more than 40 publications and presentations. Um, so without further ado, I'd like to have Dale uh, just talk to you for about 15 minutes on uh, just improving and build adaption and building natural disaster resilience. Uh, as a part of sustainability. So, Dale, Dale, very welcome. Thank you very much, Curtis. It's a pleasure to uh, speak with you today. I, I really wanted to take the tack of talking about sustainability from the resilience point of view. Um, it's hard to be sustainable if you're not resilient, and these two are very interrelated. And I'd like to more specifically look at um, climate adaptation. Um, there's a certain amount of adaptive capacity that we have in our infrastructure and in our societies, which is the ability of a system to adjust. However, there have been significant swings, increases in natural disasters. Uh, for example, since 1980, the overall losses from natural disasters is trending up to over $200 billion a year, with some years, uh, of course, uh, far greater than 300 billion, um, and and the reality is that 75% of these losses are uninsured, which means that the liabilities fall to the individual and/or the governments to address. Uh, so, climate adaptation is really not an option. It's really a, a requirement that we must must consider. When I speak on this topic, um, it's from the standpoint of working with the United Nations for the last uh, almost four years now in the uh, Hyoga framework and the International Strategy for Disaster Risk Reduction. It's a, uh, a volunteer effort that I'm engaged with, uh, which really builds off of AECOM strong architectural engineering know-how to make facilities more resilient. Uh, the number of loss events um, has also significantly, if you look at the period over the last 30 years, 
And there's every indication that these kinds of wide climate variations are going to continue. I avoid low talking about if there is climate change or why there is climate change because that's an unending argument that, you know, maybe as a society we're not smart enough to really answer those questions. But the reality is the intensity and frequency of, of natural disasters is increasing. So it's incumbent upon us to really better prepare and respond uh, to these events. And in that vein, the uh, Secretary General of the UN, Ban Ki-moon, made the statement that economic losses from disasters are out of control and can only be reduced with collaboration from the private sector. And it's in that vein that um, I was uh, uh, got involved with the private sector advisory group to the UN on climate adaptation. And today we have uh, nearly 100 industrial companies worldwide that are working with the UN on this area and with the various UN cities. It's also noteworthy, I think, to point out that the World Economic Forum also uh, noted in their uh, ninth edition report that um, climate change and extreme weather events are very uh, high likelihoods um, and areas of great impact. Uh, in fact, these two were rated uh, number two overall in terms of likelihood of impact um, and in terms of likelihood to occur. Now, one thing that uh, some of us may not be aware of is the uh, Hyoga framework. The Hyoga framework was established in 2005 when 168 UN member states uh, signed the Hyoga Framework for Action. This really was uh, started after the Indian Ocean Tsunami that many of us are aware of that occurred around Christmas in 2004, which took the lives of over 250,000 people. Many uh, lives could have been saved with simple warning systems. But anyway, the UN created a program uh, arm to, uh, to work on implementation of the Hyoga Framework. And they do produce uh, a biannual report called a Global Assessment Report, which looks at global um, climate trends. The last report was published in 2013. The next report will be in 2015. The UN also launched a program called Making My City Resilient campaign in 2010. And today over 2,000 cities around the world have joined the Making My City Resilient campaign, which requires the cities to sign a declaration that they will adhere to the 10 essentials for climate adaptation. Ironically, and somewhat embarrassingly, only four cities in the U.S. have signed up for Making My City Resilient campaign. They would be uh, San Francisco, the city and county of San Francisco, which we have worked closely with, um, Hoboken, New Jersey. Uh, Don Zimmer is very enlightened in that regard. And, and then two cities in Arkansas, Normandy and uh, North Little Rock. There is also the private sector advisory group that I am the vice chair of that was established in 2011. And then most recently, in the spring of this year, we launched disaster risk-sensitive investment program called RISE, which is orchestrated by PricewaterhouseCoopers to really raise funds from foundations to help fund climate-resilient activities. 
So these are important activities that have uh, created a catalyst, if you will, to better take advantage of engineering know-how and uh, climatic trends to build um, um, a more resilient society. Uh, we all, you know, experienced Hurricane Sandy to some extent and realized the tremendous damage that occurred there. But natural disasters strike cities and countries that are uh, extremely developed, as in the case of the Great East Japan earthquake, as well as uh, developing countries. And unfortunately, the developing countries seem to suffer the greatest impact. So in anticipating this, AECOM worked with IBM and developed something that really did not exist before, and it's called the Disaster Resilience Scorecard. This is a quantitative tool built around the UN's 10 essentials that uh, is translated into an 81-character algorithm that then can be used to evaluate the, a city, city and county uh, degree of preparedness for natural disasters. The importance of the scorecard is not in, in developing a score, but it's rather in producing an action plan that can be in, implemented over a one, three, or five-year plan to improve resilience and, and help mitigate the impacts of, of, of natural disasters. Um, IBM and AECOM did this work for the UN on a pro bono basis, uh, free, and we released it into the public sector uh, earlier this year. Uh, we're continuing to work on the scorecard and have further now um, weighted each of these 10 variables and the 81 variables that make it up. But it's planning, it, it is really turning out to be a very useful tool, not to compare one city to another, but rather to establish a benchmark of where that city is and, and what are the actions that they need to take. And not all actions require capital investment. Um, and another point of note is that about 80% of the investment in a city typically comes from the private sector. So the private sector does have a stake in making cities more resilient, um, despite the fact that all of our employees in the private sector are members of the public sector as well. So we've introduced the scorecard, and it's been very well received in the marketplace, and it's become a tool that a lot of uh, uh, cities are using around the world now to better gauge their preparedness. We have a lot to do in this area, though. No one knows where the next natural disaster is going to strike. We do spend a, a great deal of effort responding to natural disasters, uh, thank goodness. Uh, but one thing that we have not done very well as a society is plan. And the California Environment, uh, Emergency Management Agency found that $1 of planning can save four to seven dollars in response cost. And so it's in that vein that IBM and AECOM developed this uh, disaster resiliency scorecard to help cities better plan uh, for those eventualities. I think I'll stop at this time, uh, Stephanie, and just see if there's any questions or any further information I can provide. Uh, great, thanks. Uh, this is Curtis. Um, so following up with that, um, what specifically are cities currently doing to, you know, adapt to uh, natural disasters uh, and part of uh, this, uh, these scorecards? Well, you know, it's a, it's a very good question, and, and as you can imagine, it's extremely variable. 
There are cities, sadly, that uh, are doing nothing. And there are other cities that are, have degrees of being very proactive. As I mentioned, I've worked closely with the city and county of San Francisco. And, and in fact, they have one day a year where they do a earthquake preparedness drill with the entire city, uh, which re really does raise awareness. And, and Mayor um, Lee is very um, active with the, with the community in terms of stressing preparedness. In fact, the Napa earthquakes was an opportunity for, that the mayor took to further inform and remind San Franciscans about uh, the uh, emergency procedures that need to be taken and what they need to do to prepare for that eventuality. In Hawaii, um, they, they do a very fine job in responding to hurricanes. Um, there's a good public emergency notification system. Um, people are taking uh, these disaster alerts much more seriously now. Ironically, a few years ago in, in uh, Missouri, when we had the terrible tornadoes, I think we had six Category 5 tornadoes in the U.S. that year. But in, in the St. Louis area, they actually had 29 minutes of notice of tornado uh, approaching. Um, and unfortunately, over 500 souls were lost because people did not take the notifications as seriously or take emergency preparations. One other ironic fact was that in some schools they had tornado shelters, but no one had checked them recently and they were full of water and therefore could not be used. So we have a very uneven set of actions that uh, cities are taking. I think everyone is starting to get more awareness, though, that the 500-year storm is occurring about every 10 years now. Uh, we have very extreme weather events. They may not be life-threatening, but they certainly are causing significant capital damage. Thanks. Um, so that, that's a lot of uh, um, just emergency, emergency preparing and preparation. Uh, is there also things on like the engineering end that cities are doing to um, help in that manner? Definitely. Um, there's, uh, there's many incentives uh, that can be taken to help retrofit. Uh, in San Francisco, they created private sector incentives to retrofit to create buildings more disaster resilient. Um, we've developed a, a lot of engineering data uh, in terms of what kind of building materials should be used uh, in contrast to the types of uh, threats that the local community may may uh, experience. For example, um, extreme rainfall, um, polymers would not necessarily be a good choice for, for buildings, whereas concrete would. In other cases, uh, for cyclone, cyclones or storms or hurricanes, um, uh, Concrete can be very preferred as well. Wood, on, on the other hand, um, could be a, a good choice in certain settings, but needs to be carefully uh, considered. So we've developed, you know, a concrete versus metals versus mortar, timber, coatings, polymers kind of index that then can be useful when one considers uh, elevated uh, sea rise, um, the frequency or uh, potential for increased uh, rainfall and floods, 
maximum temperatures. We're seeing extremely high temperatures now around in, in some places of the world, which is leading to drought conditions um, and, and bushfires as well. So it goes back to a childhood story maybe that uh, some of us may have recalled of the three little pigs where one built their house of straw, one of sticks, and one of, of stones. And it depends on your your vulnerability and depends on your location, what's the best choice of materials. And and today we can be a lot more thoughtful and I think sophisticated in, in material choices that may not eliminate but certainly can mitigate the impact of a natural disaster. Thanks. That's a, that's a cool analogy. Um, so you did mention that uh, AECOM is uh, uh, continually uh, – uh, making updates to the scorecard or, or, or you know, changing it. Uh, I was wondering what the, uh, what are the major, you know, obstacles currently in um, just accepting, uh, you know, natural disaster resilience or um, uh, just things that can be improved. Another excellent uh, question too, because many cities could have a desire for improving their resilience. And, and a system, a, a city is a, is a complex combination of many departments, um, many employees. Um, and, and one of the, the biggest barriers has been funding. And to that, I want to bring uh, your attention to the fact that the Rockefeller Foundation, in a very um, wonderful uh, program, set aside $100 million of funding for cities to apply for, to get up to up to $1 million in funding to create a resiliency program. And so far, the first 34 cities have been awarded grants of up to $1 million. Um, and one of the explicit requirements in the grants is to create a resiliency coordinator uh, which is essential first step because uh, a city is a system of systems, a very complex structure, and having a resiliency coordinator can really bring those together. The next uh, 33 city awards should be announced uh, later this year, before the end of the calendar year for sure. And then there will be a final uh, 33 cities that uh, will be uh, uh announced in calendar year 2015. Now that's a small step, but it's an important step because these these first 100 cities that are going to receive up to a million dollars in grant, a second explicit priority is that they be willing to uh to mentor other cities and 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 so on. So that is really an excellent example of what the um uh Rockefeller Foundation has done. There are other foundations that are also getting involved in resilience. I was speaking with the Walmart Foundation um, a few weeks ago. Walmart um, has has donated uh, 1.2 billion in in gifts over the last year to various causes and events and activities. Uh, and so I was talking with the foundation about the importance of resilience and climate adaptation and how cities can become more proactive. And so we are also looking, uh, working with PricewaterhouseCoopers and others to really look at different ways we can create a, a channel of funding uh, for this to occur. 
the uh, housing and urban development has also got a program, an application process that's going on now to create funding for climate adaptation resilience in cities. Uh, those awards will be announced in December of 2015. So there's much activity going on in this area, and I think there's a, a greater opportunity of sharing best practices um, and lessons learned and, um, and seeking funding from a variety of sources to, uh, to move this forward. Hmm. Uh, now, you, now, you mentioned the importance of uh, the private sector uh, and their role in, in uh, uh, helping cities uh, become more resilient. Uh, are there opportunities out there for um, businesses themselves to uh, just become resilient in, in case of natural disasters? And could they use this scorecard, or, or is there something similar out there uh, that they could use to uh, help themselves. The um, many of our many companies today will have what's called business continuity plans, which are what if plans um, in the event of an un unintended or unanticipated uh, event, so to speak. And let me just take you back to the Great East Japan earthquake, uh, where the Toyota supply chain was interrupted by the earthquake, and it, it really uh, uh, created a, a loss in revenue for Toyota of over a billion dollars. Um, and in the U.S. alone, 150,000 uh, Toyotas were not produced because the supply chain was interrupted. So even though there have been business continuity plans developed, those plans sometimes are not uh, perhaps as robust or comprehensive, or they haven't considered the supply chain uh, well enough to look at the inter interdependencies that companies typically have. So there has been a call with you know further updating and putting uh, more rigor into business continuity plans. And one of the things that we've done, I've done in, in facilitating um, working groups between the public and the private sector in various of our cities is um, public-private sector work groups where business continuity plans are shared with the local city and government, uh, city and county, uh, so that it can be more aligned and, and respond in, in in sequence, uh, respond together rather than respond individually. So I think there's a, a very important role for the private sector um, to become um, more engaged in the community action uh, for um, climate adaptation. And again, we, we didn't experience the same sense of urgency 10 years ago or 20 years ago because we haven't had these trends. And, you know, we're all familiar with the, the massive flooding that's occurred and how stores um, get looted or uh, materials are not uh, appropriately disseminated. And, and so this is something that I think there's a lot more emphasis being put in today that will cause for a much better response. Mm -hmm. And as, just as the awareness grows and uh, our efforts kind of continue, uh, just in the world to um, just adapt to all these. What do you see in store for the future of uh, just climate adaption and natural disaster resilience? What are the maybe like key key innovations over the you know next five years or so, or uh, just any efforts? 
Well, I think there's a, there's a need for uh, building awareness. And the UN has also published uh, an awareness tool called the Local Government Self-Assessment Tool, which helps uh, communities raise awareness of uh, the potential for uh, natural disasters, and disasters of all types, actually. Um, so that building the awareness is, is one step. Um, but I think also in going through um, a critical evaluation, uh, not all improvements for resilience in, uh, require capital. Yes, we can make buildings uh, that are more resilient. Um, we can retrofit. We can allow for seawater rise. We can make necessary adjustments. Um, that do require capital, perhaps. But there's also a need for political courage. And political courage manifests itself in zoning and what are the requirements in the building codes and so on that need to be adjusted. Perhaps there are certain areas in our cities that uh, residential housing or business operations should not be permitted. Perhaps they should become more dedicated park space rather than you know areas that are highly exposed uh, with large population densities to natural disasters. So I think there's a combination that, uh, of actions that can stem from building the awareness, uh, both which can be a better application of capital, uh, and second of all, um, um, more, um, or, or if you will, better decision-making on what are allowed activities within certain parts of the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephanie, do you have any questions at this point? No, I've just really been enjoying the conversation. Gail, what I'm really curious about, though, um, you know, going back again to the cities who have signed on to this and those who haven't, who have decided to adopt a scorecard, how come, like, Hoboken would adopt it and not New York City? And I understand there's funding there and there's, you know, issues and support, but what do you think is the number one reason that a city like New York hasn't yet, but San Francisco has? Well, um, it requires strong mayoral support. Um, there, it's a commitment that the mayor must make on behalf of the city to um, endorse the, the 10 essentials and make a commitment to, uh, to take steps to, uh, to build resiliency. And Mayor Bloomberg, in fact, is, uh, works with the Secretary General in this area and is a very um, uh, outspoken advocate of, of uh, making my city resilient campaign. Um, he's raised awareness of, of this uh, making my city resilient campaign. However, it really occurred after he came out of office. So it's important, I think, for us uh, to, uh, to be able to inform our re elected representatives that there is such a program available. And I know some of the listeners may want to learn more about this, and I would reference you to a website, the UN website. It's www.unisdr.org uh, slash campaign. And if those of us on the phone can each, we could inform our local mayors of such a program, which requires no capital, but just a commitment, and, and creates access to a tremendous number of tools that can help cities, we could really advance this cause. 
Great. Thank you for that suggestion. I'm going to go look it up for sure. So, you know, going back to a bit of the, the cooperation that the private sector needs to have in this, um, clearly many companies have a very vast supply chain and they really should care about resiliency. And when you, you know, talk about Toyota and there are tons of examples in the past of supply chains that have been ruined because of natural disasters. So what industries do you feel like are picking up on this faster and are trying to, trying to adapt to resiliency faster than other ones? I mean, I have my examples of what I think they could be, but I don't know if there's an industry that's kind of leading the way in this. Well, there's that adage that um, a fool learns from his, no, his own mistakes and a wise person learns from the mistakes of others. So there's been a lot of good lessons learned that have come up uh, from this, uh, from the, the natural disasters, whether it's Katrina, uh, Hurricane Sandy, uh, or other events. So um, you really couldn't... Uh, say that there's a certain sector or uh, that I'm aware of that's doing a better job than others, but I think all companies are taking notice now and realizing the increased frequency, realizing that insured losses uh, are a minority of the expense that's incurred, and that uh, in some cases even shareholder groups have demanded a business continuity plans that are more comprehensive. So I, I think there is a general, uh, you know, all boats rise on the incoming tide. I think there's a general rise of awareness of this. And I, I think many uh, of the leading companies are taking very proactive actions to to become a part of the community uh, in the resilient activity, uh, as well as building a stronger uh, supply chain. Because an important element in natural disasters is not not only the planning, and the response, but it's how fast you can recover. And and getting uh, people back to work, getting the infrastructure turned back on is a very, very incredible, uh, important item. In New Zealand, uh, with the great, uh, the Christchurch earthquake, there was a story of one u local utility that had uh, invested $6 million in earthquake preparedness in the prior year. And their estimate of return on that investment was well over $60 million after the, 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 the massive earthquake that occurred there. Now, New Zealand and Christchurch has earthquakes all the time, but nevertheless, the fact that they had taken those preparatory actions and then were able to endure such a tremendous uh, earthquake uh, without uh, significant damage did provide then power back to the municipality uh, relatively quickly. So, long answer to a short question. <laughs> no, it makes a ton of sense, and it's really good to hear examples of how this actually occurred in real life. Um, if anyone would like to ask Dale a question, you can press 5 star on your phone, and I will call on you. Um, but in the meantime, I had another question around the mentorship piece you mentioned, how cities and organizations really need to mentor one another to adopt this scorecard and kind of take this resiliency approach from your experience, Dale, what have you seen have been the best ways that uh, groups have mentored one another, more from like the working group perspective or online resources, or how are they really disseminating this knowledge? You know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm, I don't see a real organized mechanism right now. I think there's, there's systems um, and, and activities that are in process that when we look back a year or two from now, we'll recognize that 
by 2016, we're going to have a much more um, uh, efficient way of finding those best practices and applying those. It's almost anecdotal now. I mean, I, I just returned after living in uh, Europe for two years where I oversaw Europe, Europe, Middle East, and Africa activity. And, and um, I was impressed at how the European cities were, were getting together and, and uh, going, uh, visiting uh, flood zones to learn as much as they possibly could that they could then take home. But it was pretty much anecdotal and a local initiative rather than a coordinated function of, or a coordinated clearinghouse of sharing information. So, you know, whether it's extreme heat events uh, or flooding uh, or hurricanes or earthquakes, um, I, I think there is a gap today that needs to be, that will be filled that will better facilitate the communication. Programs like the Rockefeller Foundation uh, Resiliency uh, will, will help, um, but I think also the need, the necessity is going to drive uh, that we have a better way of learning from each other. Right. I mean, I think you're absolutely... Sorry, go ahead, Curtis. Uh, yeah, I was just going to follow up with that. Um, since you've spent so much time in uh, other countries and uh, following up with um, everything you've done with the scorecard, I was wondering what uh, what are other countries doing uh, more that you see um, that the U.S. is hesitant to take on or just hasn't taken on yet? Well, um, the Hyoga framework is a document, uh, an agreement that was signed by nearly every country in the world at the time. And that gets administered at the federal level. And each year, each country is to submit a plan, a submit a summary report to the UN. Um, but part of that um, has been manifested by the countries communicating to their cities about the UN program. Uh, Italy suffered an earthquake a few years ago, and the, the city was never rebuilt. And and yet, when you look at now, um, Italy is one of the countries that has the most cities signed up for making my city resilient campaign. So there there is more of a rallying point um, in some countries uh, where they're building the awareness and encouraging a lot more communication in this area. Um, and and that's where it's somewhat ironic with over 2,200 of the world cities, and there's probably a sign-up of about 50 to 100 cities every week, but there's only four in the U.S. So I, I think, you know, the more cities that can become aware of these kinds of programs, they can be also, they can learn from as well as share uh, good information that has been learned. Yeah, and Dale, just as follow-up to that, I mean, so if only four U.S. cities have signed up, do you think that the, it's that the U.S. is really behind or they're just unaware about this specific initiative or they're just hes hesitant to sign up? Or do you, do you think they're actually ahead of the game a little bit or are we really essentially behind? I, I think it varies uh, tremendously. I mean, the city of New York put together a resiliency plan after Hurricane Sandy that really won international accolades. Um, and it was a comprehensive plan, an excellent plan. Um, so it's really somewhat of a, of a, of a mixed 
uh, situation. I, you know, there are some communities that are very active in, in addressing, for example, the earthquake uh, potentials. Um, Hawaii, as I mentioned, is very attuned to uh, responding to hurricanes. But one of the things that we're beginning to see frequency, uh, increased frequency of now, um, and that many cities are not prepared for, is you not only have a hurric hurricane, but you may have a hurricane and an earthquake at the same time. Uh, you may have a tsunami um, and, and massive flooding. Um, so there's there's interrelated activities. I think in general the developed countries are in better position to respond to natural disasters than undeveloped countries. Um, that doesn't mean that we in the U.S. and in the developed world have been as attuned to the increase in frequency of the, of natural disasters and not only the frequency but the intensity um you know it rains differently today than what it did 10 years ago so i i think we're we're living in a period um that i refer to as a new normal that sometimes we look back and say well you know it's a 50-year storm and i just had one so i won't have another one for 49 years and and that's not the case today. Uh, that might have been the case 50 years ago, but it's not the case today. So I think we're in a changing uh, environment that we need to respond to. And and cities are are, are learning from from their own mistakes for sure. But I think also uh, cities are are also picking up on uh, lessons learned from other other examples as well. So it's a moving target. It's an area, I think, of great opportunity, particularly for the MBA students to consider. Um, I think every city in the longer run will have a resiliency coordinator that will probably address both natural and unnatural disasters because it's just part of, uh, part of our life now. We could reduce carbon emissions this year as the U.S. has, as we've gone to more natural gas, the system, the climate system is so dramatically large that it, it's going to take years, if not decades, before we see a, a relief from the, uh, the greenhouse gas effect. Um, just to step back a minute from resilience, um, what are some uh, key takeaways you've just learned um, from your environmental management experience while working in uh, just so many countries over so many years? Well, one thing that you never want to forget is that you are a guest in a country, wherever you may be. Um, and as a guest, you need to behave as a guest. Um, and, and that means understanding the local culture, understanding the local systems, and, and working with the systems to get things done, um, and to listen more carefully. Um, that is uh, is really, I think, one of the most important lessons that I've learned. How hard is it to um, to go into a country uh, as an outsider and try and get work done? Well, it, it can be immensely difficult. Um, I was in Nigeria recently in Abuja, 
uh, doing some work for the UN. And um, one of the, the things that uh, was surprising to me is that Nigeria is the largest economy in Africa. It's a population of 100 and, more than 170 million people. Um, and Shell, for example, would be the largest investor in Nigeria. But that there isn't good linkage between activities in the private sector and the public sector. That um, if you're working in the public sector uh, for government or government agencies, uh, there there tends to be not as much cooperation um, as as there could be in some cases. But it varies. Uh, in Germany, um, there's very close coordination between industry and government. Um, maybe less types of enforcement that we're familiar with in the U.S., but it's more of a collaborative, cooperative approach um, that allows to get things done. So I think in, in those two extremes, um, you really need to understand um, how uh, the government and the private sector do work together, what's the linkages, and what are the, uh, the proper methods of working. Of course, AECOM is you know, one of the most ethical companies in the world. We've been voted, I think, four times now by Ethospheres, one of the most ethical companies in our business. So there, there is also that need to constantly reinforce that element of, of not only um, what kind of business and service you perform, but how you perform it. Just a reminder, if anyone would like to ask Dale a question, please press 5 star on your phone. Um, you know, Dale, it's really, it's really fascinating to hear about your experience you know, internationally because I, do, I absolutely agree that you need to understand the local system and the culture before you can really do anything there. Um, with that said, you know, with the scorecard, I know we talked about how you know, some places care more about earthquakes, some hurricanes, you know, others flooding, et cetera. How does the scorecard get tailored um, to each to each country or each city? Um, is it have a lot of room for that kind of uh, creativity, or is it a general framework that people must work within? How does it work um, on the ground sure, in that sure. way? Very good question. Um, the, um, the, the 10 essentials, and we, and we base the scorecard on the 10 essentials. Let me just quickly review that. Essential one is engage, share, understanding, and coordination. Essential two, create financing and incentives. Essential th uh, three, identify and understand perils, probabilities, and impacts. Essential four, make critical infrastructure disaster resilient. Uh, five, make education and healthcare infrastructure disaster resilient, and, and so on. And so there, there is anywhere from three or four, uh, maybe as many as ten questions behind each of these essentials that have a scoring system from one to five based on and how you respond to that question. Um, so it, it really is a framework uh, that, that offers a lot of visibility. Uh, for example, um, essential six is apply and enforce realistic risk compliant building regulations. And so there, the subjects could be land use and, and there could be indicative measurements um, like zero meaning you have nothing in place, 
to five where you have a full system in place. So it's a self-administered tool or could be administered by a third party that really just evaluates uh, or gauges where you are in that continuum for each of these 81 questions behind the 10 essentials. So it is really a custom uh, report at the end of it all uh, based on on what your setting is and, uh, and the documents or the systems that you've put in place. One of the first cities to use a scorecard was in Kambiator, India, a uh, population of three and a half million. And, and they really used it wisely as a, as a tool to uh, identify gaps um, uh, as well. So they were one of the first large cities to really embrace the scorecard and implement it and then create corrective action plans. That's great. And does, it, does this kind of tool also track that what the difference would be if things aren't implemented or they're not? So for example, if you know, a measure is not put in place due to, you know, for example, if a natural disaster happens and um, and there isn't a scorecard in place, and then after there is, and kind of numbers and the people affected as a result of putting the scorecard in, or does it not really track exactly those metrics? It hasn't really tracked that way, but you know, one of the things I think we will begin to see, um, you know, because we're talking eight or nine hundred natural disasters a year that occur, and and that's an increasing number. I think as we get uh, more focus on resiliency that we're going to recognize there are certain cities that have been proactive and taken actions um, and and their their losses have been far less and you know one of the most vulnerable uh, societies in the world are the Philippines uh, so much of the population um, lives at sea level or below sea level but on the other hand they've really taken very proactive actions Many of the shopping malls in the Philippines are built on stilts. And so the shopping malls actually become evacuation centers in, in the events of floods. And you recall the recent typhoon. At one point, it was forecasted that there could be a loss of life as much as a, a half a million people. It was the, it was the worst uh, storm ever recorded. Uh, but because of the planning and preparation that was done, and the evacuations that occurred in a very orderly fashion, um, the loss of life, life was greatly reduced um, to, to a, a couple of thousand. Um, still tragic, but nowhere near the, the magnitude. So an example where the, the Philippines, uh, while they have much to do, have, have good systems in place that really help mitigate uh, some of the potential. The same, I would reference back to um, Christchurch and New Zealand in general, where they've got a tremendous program of, of uh, knitting together um, members uh, of the community to respond to natural disasters. Uh, young people, uh, businesses, academics, uh, all working together uh, in response. So I, I think there's some good examples that have uh, mitigated or reduced the impacts. And then there's some other cases where uh, just things occurred that were just totally unanticipated, as in the case of the Great East Japan earthquake. Um, you know, the nuclear power plants were built to withstand an earthquake of a certain size, and actually the one, the Tsunami, exceeded that. So 
there, it's really a somewhat of a mixed case where you've got some cities and, and, and governments that are, are really working hard at this and making some really good progress. And when something bad does happen, they, they have mitigated the effects. And then in other cases, um, um, the preparation is not in place, and, and it's really a, um, a much more tragic event than what it needed to be. Right. No, that makes absolute sense. Thank you for those examples. Really helpful to provide more color about this. Um, so at this point, it's last call for any questions. Please press 5 star on your line. Um, and just for everyone on the phone, our next Sustainable Business Fridays will be on November 21st um, with Sophia Mendelson, who is Head of Sustainability at JetBlue. So that should also be a great conversation. Um, and I've really enjoyed today's. Um, Curtis, I don't know if you have any other closing questions for Dale. Um, I guess I have one more. Um, what what wise, wise words or advice would you say to us MBA students? Um, I think the idea of uh, perhaps uh, understanding better business continuity plans and and how they're put together and how they could be better. Um, I think it's a real uh, emerging need that a lot of companies have and then how to better take those business continuity plans and in integrate them to the communities in which companies operate. I think that would be an excellent growth area. Thank you. Yeah, it sounds like a great project for, for students to work on. Um, yeah. That is great advice. Well, thank, you very, thank, you. thank you very much, Stephanie and Curtis. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today on this topic, which is, very, uh, I think, of great importance. Oh, I agree. It's, it's extremely important. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about it today and sharing all your experiences here in the U.S. and internationally. Um, and I look forward to staying in touch. So thank you so much for being part of today's call. Yes, thank you, Dale. Best regards. Okay. Talk to you all later. Thank you. Thank you, every, thank you everyone, for joining. Bye-bye.